Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. There are two rebellions, if you'll recall, and that is in the first triennial. We talked about that last year. Why why was Korach charged so harshly with this challenge to authority? Um when really don't we have the right to question and shouldn't we have a right to question? And um, But of course, this was not a democracy. This was a theocracy uh, with God at the top making all the decisions uh, and the people who spoke for God got to tell everybody what God's decisions were, right? So we still have a bunch of that going on today, lots of places in the world. Um, but there are two different rebellions that happen. One is against Moshe as the leader And the other is against Aaron as the only one and his descendants. So he's the, he's the representative, but the, but the rebellion is about other people, other Levites wanting to be able to serve. Um, And Korach is one of them. Korach is a Levite. He challenges Aaron's special status as the only one and his sons after him to serve as the Kehuna, as the priesthood. So this is, this is the challenge of, Korach to Aaron's authority, but their Datan and Abiram are challenging Moses's leadership. If you'll recall, one verse of Torah, you know, Moshe says, you know, to God, and you know, I've not taken one cow from any of them. So that seems to come out of nowhere. Bert's laughing, but like this seems to come out of nowhere. I haven't taken one cow, not a donkey from them. So, so what is that about? It seems that Moshe interprets their challenge to be about corruption, that they are challenging Datan and Aviram and their gang are challenging Moshe and are, are accusing him of being corrupt in his leadership, meaning, you know, financially benefiting from his position as leader. Could you imagine somebody doing that? So um, he, he answers them. And so we have two answers. Datan and Abiram and all of his people are swallowed up, if you'll recall. They go down alive into Sheol. The earth opens. They go down alive. The earth closes. Korach and his band are told to bring their fire pans. You want Aaron's job? Fine. Let's see if you get away with doing Aaron's job. Well, do y'all remember uh, the two sons of Aaron? Right? Remember what happened to them? When they brought Esh Zarah, an alien fire, a strange fire, a fire goes out from before Adonai and wipes them out. It burns them up. All right. So we all know what happens when you bring fire pans and lay incense on it and you're not the one designated to do that. We know what happens. We've seen this movie before. We know about Nadav and Avihu. Well, now it happens to 250 um, people. Okay, so that's where we start our second triennial reading is at the end of the rebellions and looking at the consequences of those rebellions. Um, And we start at the end. And so what we're going to look at a little bit is, um, A, what's going on with the people of Israel, right? So it was pretty decisively decided like who who the authorities are and who speaks for God and who doesn't, given that 250 people just burned up. Right. So it's pretty clear where God comes down in this. And yet we don't see the people going, oh, okay, an answer. Order is restored. Right. Because we're talking about Jewish stories. 
So the answer is clear from God. It is decisive. And so what did the Israelites do? Accept it and, and give thanks that there is order and calm restored? No. No. These are Jews. So what are they going to do? They're going to complain. They're going to start whining and complaining and charging that now Moshe and Aaron are just dangerous. Right now, when they see what happens, they say, you're going to get us all killed. This is their this is their response. So we're going to look at that and we're going to look at the very weird sort of that we're going to see what the tradition does with it. This weird idea of the flowering staff. All right. With no further ado, let's look at our text. So we're going to start at chapter 17. God says to Moshe, God says to Moshe saying, which, and I just love this piece of Torah, by the way, this is, this is a piece of Torah that I just super, super care about um, for lots of reasons that we'll talk about. But so here's, here's the, here's the aftermath. The earth opens its mouth, swallows them up, Korach and all their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol. All Israel around them fled at their shrieks for they said the earth might swallow us. So the people don't know what's going on. There's pandemonium, there's chaos. And a fire went forth from yod and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Okay, so just like Nadav and Abihu, a fire goes out from before yod seems to be an automatic response to um, unsolicited unsolicited incense being offered by somebody other than Aaron and his sons in the way that they were ordered to do it. Nadav and Abihu were kosher. They were, it was okay for them to offer incense because they were descendants of Aaron, but only as they were prescribed to do anything outside what's prescribed. And what happens is a fire goes forth from before Adonai and consumes them. That's just what happens. We, we are not given any indication that here or there, this is a punishment. We are told this is the consequence. And Moshe set this up. Moshe knows from Nadav and Avihu what happens when you bring a fire pan and an incense offering that is not legislated, that is not prescribed. What happens is this. Moshe knew that. God did not set this up. Moshe did. All right. Which it gives you another sense of who Moshe is. <laughs> this is the... If you ask me the darker side of Moshe, he's like, remember that Nadav and Avihu thing? Well, guess what? I bet that would work here too. And it did. So now God talks to Moshe and says, order Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest to remove the fire pans. Look at this people for they have become sacred from among the charred remains and scatter the coals abroad. All right. So here we have this very interesting concept that these fire pans have become sacred. Kadeshu, ki kadeshu, for they are now kadosh. Okay, well, that sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? How can they be kadosh? If it was kadosh, if they're sacred, then why did these guys burn up? If this was truly a sacred offering, what is going on? Okay, let's hang in there. Take the fire pans of those who have sinned at the cost of their lives and let them be made into hammered sheets as plating for the altar. 
For once they have been used for offering to yud heh vav they have become sacred. And let them serve as a warning to the people of Israel. And so Eliezer, the priest, took the copper fire pans, which had been used for offering by those who died in the fire, and they were hammered into plating for the altar, as yud heh had ordered him through Moses. It was a reminder. Well, what's the word used in Hebrew for reminder? It is an ut. Zikaron, livnei Israel. It is going to be a remembrance for the people of Israel, a reminder to them that no outsider, one not of Aaron's offspring, should presume to offer incense before yud and suffer the fate of Korach and his band. Okay? So we, we have this this interesting piece of Torah here that, that these guys offer challenge the authority of Aaron that was instituted by God, presumably, and the fire goes out and consumes them. And yet their fire pans are considered kadosh. They are considered sacred and set aside for a sacred purpose. So what does God command be done with them? God commands that they be hammered down into plating for the altar so that whenever the Levites are serving and helping with cutting up animals and distributing the meat and all of those things and removing the coals and bringing the fire, whenever they're doing all that, they get a visible reminder all the time of what happens when you challenge the authority of Aaron and his offspring. It's an ot. It's a sign. Usually an ot is a positive thing. So we can talk about that in a minute. So what happens to the rest of the people? The next day, the whole Israelite community, kol adat b'nei Israel, right? These are the same folks that gathered against Moshe and Aaron, the Adah, the community. They railed against Moses and Aaron saying, you two have brought, had brought death upon the people of yod heh vav All right, so are they satisfied? Are the people satisfied that order has been restored? No. Now they're going to turn on Moshe and Aaron and say, you killed everybody. But as the community gathered against them, Moshe and Aaron turned toward the tent of meeting. The cloud had covered it and the presence of yud heh had appeared. Dun, 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 dun. Right? So they're not going to let this go. They turn on Moshe and Aaron. Okay, people, this is the, this is the moment. And so Moshe and Aaron turned towards the, the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, and behold, there is God's presence. Okay. This is God as mom saying, don't make me come down there, right? Or what's going on in here? Knowing exactly what's going on in here, but everyone starts shaking in their bedroom shoes when mom says, what's happening in here, right? So Moshe and Aharon go to the tent of meeting because this is usually where Moshe communicates with God and God speaks to Moshe saying, Remove yourselves from this community that I may annihilate them in an instant. And Moshe and Aaron fall on their faces. Moshe says to Aaron, take the fire pan and put on it fire from the altar. So the legit priest with the legit fire pan, take it, add incense and quickly take it to the community and make expiation for them. For wrath has gone out from before you. The plague has begun. All right, so God says, get away from these people. I'm taking care of business. 
Moshe understands what that means. Moshe understands a plague has begun among the people. So he says to Aaron, take the fire pan, put incense on it and go make expiation for them. Aaron took it as Moses had ordered and ran to the midst of the congregation. Notice the language of hurrying. This is going to be important for what happens next, say many of our mafarshim, many of our commentators. Mo- he runs, right? M- there's urgency here. Moshe saying, go, <laughs> you need to go. And Aaron runs to the midst of the congregation where the plague had begun. He put on the incense and he made expiation for the people. He stood between the dead and the living until the plague was checked, which I can't help but you know think of as being essential workers. And our most recent lived history, standing between the the dead and the living until the plague was checked. Those who died of the plague came to 14,700, aside from those who died on account of Korach. Aaron then returned to Moses at the tent of meeting since the plague was checked. Okay, so we're going to stop here for just a second. Um, That's a a bit to take in, but so this idea that that the challenge through the use of fire pans, it was Moshe who set up that challenge. Like I said, God did not say to Moses, tell Korach and his band to take fire pans. Moshe said that on his own. So Moshe sets up this test. Moshe sets up this trial, literally trial by fire, <laughs> right? Um, to, to get at who's the legitimate kehuna, who, who's allowed, who's, the legitimate priesthood, and it works. And these people are consumed, and yet their fire pans are to be considered kadosh. They are to be hammered into plating for the altar and kept there for, one would imagine, means for all time. So so it's a constant reminder of this challenge of authority. So you could see it as it's a constant reminder not to do what they did. So it's a warning. It's this bizarre warning placed on the altar, but Torah doesn't seem to use that language. It uses the language of oat, a sign. Where else do we have an oat? Do you remember? What else is an oat? Circumcision. Circumcision is an oat in the flesh. Tzitzit. Tzitzit, which, interesting, keep that thought, Bert. Remind me if I don't get to it. Remind me of tzitz, this idea of tzitz, a bud, tzitzit fringes from last week. Help me make that connection later if I forget. So, um, so the Shabbat, Oti Leolam, is a sign forever between us, right, and the divine, a sign of love, a sign of connection. After the flood, what's the oat in the sky? A rainbow. The rainbow. The keshet is an oat. Oat seems to be a positive thing. So who's it positive for in this case? Is it is it God saying, look, the system worked? So the fire pans on the altar are just saying, people, you can trust me. <laughs> it's going to work out. Everything's going to be like it's supposed to. Because a fire will go forth from before me and boom, it's all taken care of. So what's the oat? How is this a positive a positive thing, a positive sign, a positive symbol. So I want to share with you the, the thoughts of Rabbi uh, Goldstein in, um, in Toronto, who says it's supposed to be an oat, this, this thing on the side of the altar, a sign forever, and then lifts up uh, the rainbow, Shabbat, Brit Milah, 
um, this oat seems negative, but it is nonetheless an oat, which is usually a positive thing. And so, so this, so Rabbi Goldstein says something like a museum to failed rebellion, these fire pans in the Mishkan. And then quotes Rabbi Natali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the Emek Davar, who says, the holiness of the fire pans, meaning because they've been, they've been declared by God as Kadosh, as holy, the holiness of the fire pans symbolizes the necessary role played by skeptics and agnostics in keeping religion honest and healthy. Challenges to tradition are necessary because they stand as perpetual reminders, meaning an oath, a sign, that religion can sink into corruption and complacency. Plating the altar with the fire pans of the rebels is meant to remind us of the legitimacy, indeed the potential holiness of the impulse within each of us to rebel against religious stagnation and complacency. What think you? I think that's a pretty darn reconstructionist reading <laughs> of, of this whole incident. Yeah, that that we're not supposed to let religion and tradition and ritual and all those things stagnate, that there is a holy impulse within each of us to rebel, to rebel against religious stagnation and complacency. And that that holy impulse is a good thing. It's about how we go about it. Right. So Helene agrees. Here's an interesting thing that I just read this morning that that um, young yeshiva students were encouraged by the adults with them uh, to tear to shreds the women of the wall sidurim, the prayer books that women of the wall are using. And they did. A mob shredded the prayer books of women of the wall and trashed the plaza with uh, with those torn out, ripped up, torn up pages. So something that was sacred to, to these Jewish women gathering at the wall is torn to shreds by those who are threatened with such a challenge to stagnation um, and ossification of religious tradition. It's alive and well in our time. Yeah? Lest we, lest we think we're past that. <laughs> Bert? Yeah, I, I'm struck by the fact that Moses doesn't really take the side of God in this. That Moses really, as a leader, uh, is it seems to me is on the side of the people. Moses could have just said, "Well, hey, you've you know you've raised a here once again, and so I'm done with you." And as happens a number of times, Moses doesn't tire of that. He he complains to God at one point. But it's a very interesting position as a leader. The other thing I just say briefly, one of the Psalms that is said uh, traditionally, uh, what is it, on Monday, okay, uh, in the morning service, is Psalm 48. Mm-hmm. That always right. struck me because it's a Psalm of the Song of the Sons of Korach. Mm-hmm. And I'm always wondering why we, why we have a Psalm of Korach's sons when Korach is supposed to be a bad guy. Right. Well, because I think that I think the tradition is not clear that Korach is a bad guy. 
I think that's part of you know, the instinct of this commentary that I just read from, and that's that goes back to you know the Ha'emek Davar. That's not even this rabbi. This rabbi's bringing Ha'emek Davar, which is a very traditional commentator. And to say it doesn't seem so clear if you really read the text and really look at everything, it doesn't seem so clear that Korach is wrong in terms of challenging and wanting to take part in the kehuna in the priesthood. Most people come down on the side of it's how he does it. It's that he does it publicly. He does it in a way that that can inflame and divide the people. He goes to chieftains. He goes to the leaders of the people and riles them up to publicly challenge uh, Aaron's authority. That this is not the way to have brought forward a legitimate case for wanting to participate right in leadership differently than the role he's been given. And that those are two different things that usually get conflated, that because this happens and this is the outcome, it must mean that he had no business challenging anything or saying anything. And it doesn't seem so. It seems that it is not unequivocal, um, to your point, Bert, um, that there's an oat here. It seems the impulse is recognized as kadosh, as sacred, as holy. And so the rabbis pretty much agree it's how he does it, that that is what is really wrong um, here and it's why he causes so much trouble. But yes, Moshe, as always, is the consummate leader. If, like I said, showing a little bit of his dark side. Okay, how about y'all go and get your fire pans? <laughs> There's some incense over there in the cabinet. Get that, <laughs> right? Like, so doesn't go to God and say, What am I supposed to do? Says, Y'all go get your fire pans, right? So, but but Moshe, the consummate leader, always when God says, get out of the way, get out of my way, because I'm about to let this people have it. Moshe always says, no, 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 that is not going to happen, right? Literally, he says over my dead body at one point, right? If you're going to kill them, kill me. If you're going to kill them, just kill me. Like, because, it, you know, I'm not doing this. I think he means I'm not doing this with another people, right? This one, this one is bad enough, <laughs> right, right? I'm not, I'm not starting over with another group that you assign me. Forget about it, right? Okay. So, um, all right. So this idea of an ut, this idea of the 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 challenge being legitimate, how we do it or what the motivation actually is. If his motivation is actually to be part of the kehuna and to serve God and to do it more intimately than the role he's been given, that's one thing. If it's to if it's to really challenge so that you gain power and prestige and control, that's something else. And I think these are some of the questions we were left with uh, as a nation after January 6th. You know, what what... <laughs> Of course, we should have the right to challenge anything in our country. We should have the right to question and to challenge how we do it is really important. Like it's not just methodology. It's it's actually critically important how we do that. And what are what is the real motives? And I think, you know, a lot of us that's what upset so many of us on on the 6, the way it was done, the violence and the intention to harm you know, public servants, whether you like their decisions or not, or the decision of the people who elected them or not. And, and the, the, the complete desire to take power if you can't earn it. If you can't convince people to vote your way, then go take it. 
Um, and that seems to be the crux of the Korach issue for the rabbis as well. Whether or not that's where Torah goes or is, I'm not arguing that. I'm saying the rabbis all agree. It's that the instinct to challenge is not what's wrong here. It's how it's done and it's what the actual motivation was. Um, and I think that we have seen that played out uh, in many ways um, over this last uh, year and a half. Um, all right. So that's one way is the Korach way uh, is, you know, the fire pan way. Um, but but there's another way that we're going to see. We're going to read this story as it is. But I'm going to let you know a secret before we do that. And that is that there is an argument in the scholarly literature about whether or not this is the original story. We, many scholars want to argue, this is not the original story. The original story was about the election of the Levites as God's chosen tribe to serve in the Mishkan. And that a later editor, P, editor P, comes along and says, "Mm -mm, we're going to fix that a little bit. And we're going to make it clear that this is not just about the election of the tribe of Levi, but we're going to move that story from wherever it used to live. We're going to put it here after this challenge to Aaron and his son's authority. And we're going to add Aaron to the story that these are Aaronid priests, right? The P author that wants to make sure the priesthood is tied back to Aaron, We've seen this in a lot of places. Remember, we talked about the Mushites, the Mushite clan, and the Aaronid clan. It's it's very clear that to some scholars that this is a gloss. All the stuff about Aaron here is a later redaction by P, by the priestly author to legitimate Aaron. You tell me what you think. Look everywhere where it says something about Aaron and tell me if it makes sense to you. Okay. And then imagine in your brain taking that part out and does it read more smoothly? All right. Speak to the Israelite people, God says to Moshe, and take from them, from the chieftains of their ancestral houses, one staff for each chieftain of an ancestral house, 12 staffs in all. Inscribe each man's name on his staff. There being one staff for each head of an ancestral house. Also, inscribe Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. Nowhere else are we told that Aaron is the head of an ancestral house, by the way. Moshe is also from Levi. We are not told that that Aaron is is head of this ancestral house. So people want to say, here's where the gloss starts. Also, inscribe Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. Okay. Deposit them in the tent of meeting before the pact where I meet with you. God is talking to Moshe. Remember, God meets with Moshe at the Ohel Moed, which some people want to argue is outside the camp because Joshua goes there at one point. So some people want to argue this is a separate structure from the tabernacle. The staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout, and I will rid myself of the incessant mutterings of the Israelites against you. Moshe spoke thus to the Israelites. Their chieftains gave him a staff for each chieftain of an ancestral house, 12 staffs in all. Here's where the scholars want to say this is a gloss. Among these staffs was that of Aaron. Moshe deposited the staffs before Adonai in the tent of the pact. What is the word for staff? Mate. Mate. Mate can mean staff. What else can it mean, Barry? 
In modern Hebrew, it's like uh, the chief of staff we have in, here is. In biblical okay. Hebrew, mate means staff, and it can also mean tribe. Wow. This is this is why the the original story seems to be a play on words using staffs. Say some scholars the mate to represent each mate each tribe. So the flowering mate, the staff that's going to flower, is going to elect the mate, the tribe that is being selected here. So that's part of their linguistic argument, their literary argument. For the fact that this is a, about Levi, not about Aaron. The Aaron stuff is a gloss. It doesn't really matter. This is a story we have, but I just always like to give y'all the secret sauce that nobody else is going to give you. All right. Moses deposited the staffs right in the Ohel Moed. The next day, Moshe enters the Ohel Moed, and there the staff of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted. It had brought forth sprouts, produced blossoms, and borne almonds. All right, let's look at some of that language, shall we? Because it's all going to be important. Behine and lo, as it's translated in English, and lo, behold, parach mate aharon. So first we have parach, it flowers. Vayotse ferach. And then it brings forth, this says sprouts, ferach. Vayatzeit tzit. Remember we talked about tzitz? Bert mentioned tzitzit. Here we go. This is a connection to last week's Parsha. Some say what is on Aaron's head is that gold thing that says kadosh Adonai, and on it is a tzitz, a bud. So here's the verb, vayatzeitz, and budded tzitz, but a bud. Vayigmol shkedim. And, uh, and then we get shkedim, the actual fruit, which is almonds. Okay. So some people want to ask, why do we need all of these verbs here? What, what is going on? Don't worry. The tradition has a very long and wonderful answer to that. Moshe then brought out all the staffs from before Yudhevafe to all the Israelites, each identified and recovered his staff. God said to Moshe, put Aaron's staff back before the pact to be kept as a lesson. Here we go again, right? Another oat, as an oat to the rebels so that their mutterings against me may cease lest they die. This Moshe did just as Adonai commanded him. So he did. So what does God say? God says, put the staff back so that it's a lesson. It's an oath so that their mutterings against me may cease. Do they cease? Look at verse 27. Even God doesn't get this people, (laughs) right? Verse 27. But the Israelites said to Moses, lo, we perish. We are lost. All of us lost. Everyone who so much as ventures near Yudhevavhe's tabernacle must die. Alas, we are doomed to perish. Okay, so lovely. Do the people stop muttering and stop their incessant muttering? (laughs) No, they do not. So, and this is where our chapter 17 ends. And it goes on to a whole other topic. So in a way... This whole story is kind of an epic fail. These oats, these signs don't seem to work to stop the people 
from complaining and it doesn't seem to stop them from their mutterings. Um, and, and, but okay. So it's, so it's an ut. We have this, this blossoming of the, um, of the mate of the symbol of some people want to argue the tribe, the mate Levi. Um, others want to argue, no, this is about Aaron and restoring his authority and the miracle uh, that goes along with that. So that is absolutely authoritative. Okay, Barry. Yeah, I just remember there's a Yiddish, a Yiddish saying uh, that really says, you know, anything is possible. Uh, if God wills it, uh, even a broom could sprout leaves. Correct. Right. And, and Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and over time, because of the Polish uh, version of Yiddish, uh, it, it it got conflated with shooting, like a gun. And if God wills it, uh, a, a broom can shoot like a gun. Okay. As, like shissen is like is like shooting, and in Lithuanian Yiddish, it's a long story. And. Okay. Anyway, I think it's uh, we lo- we're looking at a scientific experiment. They are they are uh, um, putting all the staffs of all the tribes, all the presidents of all tribes, and let's see <laughs> what happens. That's right. And, uh, but I believe that this could have been done before the rebellion. Um, You're saying it could have been preventive. That like that been had this been done sooner. And, and, and another thing, uh, um, Korach is saying, is not really saying we should be priests as well because we are Levi- Levites. He goes uh, full egalitarian on them. He, he goes, all of Israel are holy. <laughs> yes. So why, so why are you, why do you get to do, do all these cool stuff with the fire? And uh, we don't. And uh, it's a test for them because when Moses says, take your fire pans, uh, really what Korach should have said, if he really cared about the equality of the people, is let everyone of Israel bring their fire pans. I'm not, I'm not talking about myself here, <laughs> but right. they failed but, this test. But, but it's, it's Moshe who sets up the test, and Moshe is only interested in going after the ringleaders. <laughs> Right. Yeah, so so Korach really cared about equality. He would have said, you know, okay, let's have all the Israelites bring their fire pad, and which not is, just right. Which is, you know, another argument for that was not his real intention, right? He wasn't. Yeah, it was. Really he was using. It's like you know, people caring about how Muslim, Muslim women are treated only when it comes to you know bashing Muslims in general. They don't really care, you know, day to day about, you know, gay people or Muslim women. They just want to show that Islam is bad. So taking an agenda, whatever your true agenda is, right? And then, you know, disguising it, if you will, like as uh, as a different kind of concern that that seems more legitimate. So that that certainly is how the rabbis understand uh, what's going on with Korach. Um, and certainly this, this staff thing is a miracle. We see it later. We see it in other places. We see it in Christianity. Uh, in early Christianity, we have uh, blossoming staves as well. Um, and so it seems to be a, uh, you know, a, it seems to be a thing, you know, that you take a dead piece of wood and have it sprout 
in the in the case of one of the other ones, it's an olive piece of olive wood and it sprouts olives, right? So it's so it's whatever kind of tree it comes from that it returns to being from dead wood, it returns to being um fruitful, literally. Um and so that that seems to be a miracle that is repeated. But the menorah also sprouted. Whoa, the menorah didn't sprout. The menorah we they were commanded to produce a menorah that had the calyxes and right and and buds right so that's that's another place we see this theme of the tzitz you know of the bud running through the sacred in the mishkan and so for some some commentators in the tradition they want to say so it makes sense it would be a, a, a almond branch that that budded because that's what we see or that or that this is the miracle because that's what we see tzitz Tzitzit, all these connections to tzitz and bud and on Aaron's forehead and um, and like you just said, on the menorah. Um, right. So that, that it makes perfect sense that this would be the the miracle. This would be the test. Wasn't the the, the staff was also uh, Moses raised his staff uh, back in Egypt. So presumably, presumably that's a different staff. No, but exactly. it's it's the idea of a staff having some kind well, of power. Well, we, from the idea of the staff, we go all the way back to Judah mm-hmm. and Tamar. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. It goes before Moshe, right? It goes all the way back to how does Tamar prove she has done nothing wrong and should not be brought out to be burned because she's pregnant? How does she prove that? She brings forth the staff of Judah, which was irrevocable proof, undeniable proof that it was Judah who impregnated her. So that means the staff was so unique. And we've talked about this when we studied that text that, um, that it's like a driver's license or a passport, right? That it's that identifying as an object was Moshe's don't know. Um, was it just a walking stick, a shepherd stick? Was it the kind of Judah stick? Are they all the same kind of stick? We don't know, but certainly that idea goes back that yes, the staff was an important extension of the person. Um, and that, that makes sense that it would be those that are brought forth to, to do this, uh, to do this test. Of course, we have the image in the 23rd Psalm of the Lord is my shepherd and the shepherd uses a staff to guide the sheep. Well, that, that the metaphors I, here just keep on building. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so to a lot of people, that doesn't make any sense. When you read it in English, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Uh, Usually a rod is not seen as something that is comforting. Right. It's, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Right. It's it's a you take a beating with a rod. But clearly it's because we're not in that context. The shepherd's staff was used to protect animals from falling off of things like because sheep are not very smart. Right. So like you. You keep them from hurting themselves by using your staff. You also use your staff as a shepherd to guide the flock, right? You gently nudge them in the direction that you want them to go. And so the poet understands thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me as because I can depend on God to guide me and to guard me and to use God's shepherding staff to, to set me on the right path. Right, on the paths of righteousness. Okay. Uh, somebody says somebody has somebody's hand up. Yes, I do. I do. Yes, please. 
Uh, this further supports the idea that you had of not letting religion stagnate too, because a blooming staff out of, out of nowhere coming from a dead stick is, is new life. It's sending new life to an old piece of wood or whatever. So it, it supports the, the newness and tr- changing and developing all the time. Nice. So, uh, so out of that old ritual can come new life, new right. growing, new flowering, new meaning. Beautiful. Right. The, the tradition wants to look deeply at this idea of, um, of hurrying, of haste. So we see Aaron running, Moshe ordering, then Aaron runs and he stops the plague and there's all this running and going. And that if you look at the almond tree, it is the first to blossom in Israel. So when do we celebrate Tu Bishvat? We celebrate Tu Bishvat when, when the almond trees are wow. now pulling up sap into them. They are the first to flower. So it's this haste. So it's appropriate that, that if there's a challenge, God hastens to answer that challenge. Aaron hastens to do his job. Moshe hastens, right? They fall on their face immediately. Everyone's rushing to do what they think is the right thing. There's a sense of urgency here. And that the almond tree being the first to blossom in Israel is appropriate, therefore, as the choice of the fruit that's going to miraculously appear. Um, but also um, that that the miracle itself, that's why we have all of those verbs in a row, right? It's not just that this happened. It's that it, did, it didn't take a week and a half, right? right? Overnight, you had the entire biological process, or what do you call it? Botanical process of, you know, flower, bud, seeds, fruit, boom, overnight, right? So again, this idea of unnatural haste, which is part of the miracle, right? Remember that in general, miracles in our tradition are not things that don't happen. They're not miraculous in that they happen in nature or in the world. It's that it happens when Moshe raises his staff. It's that it happens when Aaron says, okay, now go. (laughs) And then the frogs come or it happens, you know, so much frogs, so much locusts. It's not that fields of locusts, fields, swarms of locusts are known to consume food in ancient Israel in the ancient Near East. That was a common occurrence and it wiped out, you know, crops and it caused famine. So it's not like it didn't happen. That's not the miracle in our story. The miracle is that it happened when Moshe and Aaron trigger it because it's Yehovah doing it and that it's so much. And in this case, it's the same thing. It's not that this is the normal course of how something flowers and gets a bud and then that bud turns into fruit. That, that is the normal process. What makes this miraculous is that it happens right now in the Ohel Moed to only Aaron's staff and that it happens so quickly. And so the rabbis want to draw from this a message also about we should rush to do the will of, of the divine. We should be we should hasten to do what we can. And, and it becomes a midah. It becomes an actual spiritual tenant of our tradition. Zrizut is what it's called in the Hasidic tradition. Zrizut is alacrity. 
that one should be eager to perform a mitzvah. One should be eager to fulfill the, the will of the divine. Uh, and one should rush to do that. And that that, that is an actual spiritual um, value, a spiritual characteristic <laughs> that the uh, the Hasidic tradition really wants to cultivate in people. It's not just kind of going, okay, I have to go help my friend who's having a really hard time. You know, it's like, no, it's like, you know, my friend called, there's, they're having a hard time. I, let me rush over there and, and, and do what I can to be present, to do what I can, right. Um, to contribute to, um, to bet, to, to being there for somebody as a mitzvah. So, um, okay. And aren't we supposed to rush to the Torah? Yes. And be slow to leave it. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful, Judith. So when you are called to Torah, in case you don't know this, when you are called to Torah for an aliyah, you take the shortest path to get there. And you're supposed to take the long way back. Oh, your yeah. seat. Right. So if you if you see this happen in a shul, you'll see people come straight to the Torah and then they go all the way around to get back to their seat. That is considered the proper way to express that one rushes to Torah and one wants to linger for as long as possible um, and to give as many people as possible the opportunity to shake your hand and wish you yashakoch. Right. So you spread the good juju all through the community, all through the congregation. Okay. Oh my gosh. How does it get so late? I've even gotten to my charts, people. I have a chart. Like I wrote it out and everything. Okay. So <laughs> I'll go quickly through the chart. Um, Cause I just think it's so cool that what our, like I tell you sometimes, like, you know, this is the playground of generations of scholars and rabbis and teachers and spiritual seekers. And they do crazy things with these texts, but um let me show you some of the crazy they do with this. Cause I think it's just cool. It's so cool from essence to actualization. Okay. You gotta love these people. Okay. You ready for this? All right. So the miracle of the staff, there are four stages to the blossoming of the staff. These stages correspond to the four letters of God's holy name. Well, of course they do. Of course <laughs> they do. He's got four going on. It must mean something about Yudhe Vavhe, right? So, Okay, the letters of God's name, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. There you see it, okay? So stage one, the inanimate staff, the initial all-inclusive point of the Yud, right? The Yud is the first letter of God's name. Yud, called Abba, the aspect of father, corresponding to the Sephira, the spiritual emanation of Chochmah, of wisdom. So where does everything start? This is about spiritual actualization, moving from possibility, essence, to actualization. That's what's actually going on with the staff, people. You did not know that, but that is what is actually happening. So what are those stages? For all of us, for the universe, for everyone, for the staff, it's the same. We start with the initial all-inclusive point that is called Abba, Father, the aspect of, and it's going to be family, by the way. These are the, these are all the members of the family. And this, uh, this is the stage of potential, pre-potential. This is the essential state is that everything is pre-potential. This staff of leadership, um, right? And this point of Abba, essence. All right. 
What what does a family unit traditionally have? What are the possibilities? Father, mother, son, and daughter, right? And they are all there in the father, in the um, pre-potential, the essential state. All of them are there in that potential state, right? And so this is called essence. Okay, what happens next? Perach, we saw this in the Torah text, right? We saw all of these words there. Okay, so we have the staff, that's number one. Second stage, flower, perach, is the first hey of God's name. Yud, hey, yud, hey, vav, hey. So we're at the second hey, uh, the first hey of God's name. Ima, mother, the aspect of mother, flowering, pregnancy, right? So we move from pre-potential to deep potential, to the mother, to pregnancy, possibility being kind of more there and taking on some some reality. This is the first of the three miraculous stages of development of the staff. It is pregnancy, deep potential that is still far from actualization, and it is called yecholet, ability, possibility, if you will. So that's the second hay and the second stage of the flowering of the staff. What comes next for all of us as human beings is stage number three, the bud, the tzitz. Yud, hey, now we're at vav. Yud, hey, vav, hey, right? We're at the vav, the third letter of God's name. And this is the aspect of sun, S-O-N, not S-U-N. And this is about um, potential coming closer to actualization, where it's becoming to be manifest, you know, the, the, the stage of becoming more immediately possible. And this is res- referred to as koyach, potential, strength. So we need essence. We all have that. Then it moves to yecholet, you know, kind of possibility starting. Pregnancy, you know, the anticipation of maybe something's going to come into the world that's new, right? Then you have the aspect of, uh, sun, S-O-N, the more immediate potential, koach, strength, energy around around that new thing. And then we get stage four, yud, hey, vav, we're at the final hey of God's name, which is the aspect of daughter corresponding to malchut. This is delivery. Remember, malchut is the first of the, of the actual here on this planet, seven spherot. This is manifesting essence, manifesting energy, manifesting potential, manifesting, actualizing all that has gone before, and it gets born into the world, the aspect of daughter. And this is what happens for every single person, every people, every tribe, every Whatever you want to call it, um, this is what happens. We have the four stages. The the budding of the staff brings us those uh, and corresponding to yod Vafe and corresponding to the words of Torah that tell us what those stages are. And just in case you did not fully understand what that's about, here's your chart. You can print it and put it on your wall and remind yourself that the flowering staff is really Mark Fish is really about, right, moving from our potential to our actualizing that uh, potential out in the world. Who knew? Who knew? All right. Let's close with Yitz Greenberg, shall we? Moshe tells the people to step back. Well, let's, I, I started here. 
So, so he's saying, here's how we talk about our story. Deal with Korach and his allies and the clarity of the mission and the vision of acquiring a homeland will be restored. So this is what has to happen. Moshe has to deal with Korach and his allies to, to refocus the people on the mission and so that the vision of acquiring a homeland will be restored. They've been distracted by all this craziness. I couldn't help but think of our time right now. All that craziness with the election, all that garbage at the Capitol, all the crazy garbage about the big lot, all of it, all the static, all the noise totally pulled us off what we're supposed to be doing in the world as right as a country, what is our mission at home? Um, and I feel like this, this is, this is, you know, this is the story of Korach says, see, it's Greenberg, right? Deal with these crazy people, um, deal with the big lie, deal with handling that and refocus the people, refocus everybody on the mission. And what do we want to do with our homeland? That's, that's what all of this is about. When Korach and his allies are rebuffed, the crowd will realize that it is not a matter of substituting one group of grifters for another. Then Moses tells the people to step back. It is time to reclaim. So this, this is Yitz Greenberg playing on the actual words of Torah. Step back, people. Right. Well, Yitz Greenberg is saying it's more than just the physical act of stepping away from the danger. It's also time to take a big step back. It is time to reclaim the broader vision and purpose that drives them. When Korach and his allies are rejected, they will realize that Moses is on a mission from God. They will reclaim the clarity of purpose that they are all struggling to live up to a higher cause and that they still have a generational task before them, even if it is no longer to conquer the homeland. Because right now they know they're going to die in the desert. But still, like we are going to die before climate change is solved, people. That's just the truth. We're going to die before these things get fixed. But we still have a generational task. We may not live to see the promised land. It's not going to be our job necessarily to build a world that is sustainable on the other side of this crisis. But our generational task is what are we going to hand on to the generation that is going to build, God willing, the promised land, right? That's our generational task. There is a swift, stunning denouement. The vast sinkhole opens and swallows up Korach and company. Then a fire flashes back from the tabernacle and burns up all the incense fire makers. Tragically, heartbreakingly, Moses and Aaron are validated, but at the cost of many lives. I cannot help but think about how many people perished during COVID-19 that did not have to die had we been focused. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm preaching. Had we been focused as a people, had we been focused as a nation, had we been focused on the mission, had we lived into what we could do, what, what, the, what the best of us is when we're working together for higher ideals, then all those people wouldn't have had to die. Guards at the Capitol wouldn't have had to die. If we were focused, if we were having the conversations we're supposed to be having, then maybe young black men unarmed wouldn't have to die. The Israelites do finally grasp that Moses and Aaron are on the line, not for pride or pomp, but to protect them and to channel the energy toward life. This is evidenced by Aaron's actions during the subsequent plague. He carries the burning incense and stands between the dying and the living and thus checks the plague. The very incense burning, which Korach saw as a demonstration of status, 
actually stops the death-dealing plagues in its tracks. The message is that religious leadership is not about rituals honoring God or about personal standing, but about protecting life. The incense fire pans used illegitimately are fused into a cover for the altar to serve as a permanent reminder of the special use of incense for enhancing life rituals and not for pomp. And then the demonstration is set up, Aaron's rod blossoms, giving forth flowers. This is the signal that he's chosen for divine services, right? Again, the message is that holy is not some reified divinity or awe. The holy is the growth factor, the proliferations of life, the movement toward filling the world with life. Now they all, Moses, Aaron, and the people, can turn to the unfinished task of raising a generation capable of conquering a homeland, creating a covenantal society dedicated to life, realizing the dignities of all in a just and peaceful society. That is and remains the goal. Preach. Preach. Rabbi Greenberg. Preach. I just have to say, I read that and was like, Yeah, that, that, to focus on life, to focus on bringing life, to focus on enhancing the quality of life. That's the mission. That's the goal. And we get distracted by all this other craziness, right? That is human nature. That's okay. Torah is fine with that. That's why we have Torah because that's human nature. Humans created it. Humans wrote these stories. Humans taught these stories. We continue to use these stories as the Jewish people to help us understand our place in this crazy universe and this crazy idea of human societies. That's fine, but let's get the message, (laughs) right? Like That's why we keep reading these texts. It's for exactly what Rabbi Yitz Greenberg just said, to focus on how do we contribute to life and fruitfulness and growth and potential becoming actual. and good potential becoming actual. How do we repair? How do we heal? How do we take our generational tasks seriously? All of that is the conversation that we should be having. And um, and that's why I treasure this time with y'all and this refocus of our attention and intention. Um, and that's what I love about what we do uh, as a community. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.